Today's reading is out of Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1 to 12. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hands finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning, nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when the hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to have you join us today. And let me say again, happy Father's Day to all the dads who are with us. You play such an important role in the lives of our children and in our society. I want to begin the message today by asking you a question. And it's a really, really important question. What's the best sandwich you've ever had? What's the best sandwich you've ever had? Personally, I can think of a, a number of sandwiches. Tuna and mayonnaise on white bread. Toasted ham sandwiches with pickles and jalapenos. But if I had to choose the best, I would choose this one. And yes, it was that good that I took a, a photo of it. I was in the United States. I'd just arrived in Boston earlier that day. And so I went into the city looking for some food. And I stumbled across this cool looking pub. So I went inside and I ordered this magnificent creation. About 10 kilos of roast meat with a layer of onion rings. And it was in that moment when I ate it that I understood why so many people say, God bless America. Now, the reason I bring this up, the reason I've made you all a little bit hungry is because the passage that we're looking at today, it's kind of like a sandwich. There are three distinct sections to it. 
There are the two outside sections. They are like the bread. They hold the whole thing together. They give it context. But it's the middle section that makes all the difference. It's the middle section that brings the enjoyment. It's the middle section of this passage where we learn an incredibly important lesson. A lesson that I believe God wants all of us to take to heart. Now, if this is your first time with us, or if you haven't been with us in a little while, we've been in a sermon series called Chasing the Wind. We've been exploring the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And the author of Ecclesiastes, a man named the teacher, he goes on a search for meaning. He wants to find purpose in life. He wants to find satisfaction and fulfillment. And he goes looking in all the usual places. He makes lots of money. He pursues lots of women. He reads lots of books. He works lots of hours. He does all different kinds of things. But what he finds, and what we've seen in the last few weeks, is that none of them ultimately deliver. He finds that to find meaning, to find purpose, to find satisfaction in this world, it's kind of like chasing the wind. Now today we come to chapter 9 and we begin to reach the end of the book. The teacher is starting to wrap up his search and he's letting us know the lessons that he's learned and the conclusions that he's reached. And in this passage we're looking at today, we discover an incredibly important lesson. A lesson that helps us to live wisely in God's world. And to help us really get it, to help us understand it, the teacher serves it to us in the form of a sandwich. I mean, after all, who doesn't like a sandwich? Now, the first section, the first layer of bread in verses 6 to 10, the teacher shows us the one thing in life which is certain. The other outside section, the bottom layer of bread in verses 11 to 12, he shows us the many things in life which are uncertain. And then sandwiched in the middle in verses 7 to 10, he shows us the important lesson that we need to learn. And that is the good things in life, which are gifts. And so we're going to look at these three things. We'll look at the first two outside sections first, and then we'll look at the important lesson in the middle section. So let's begin with verses 1 to 6. The one thing in life which is certain. The one thing in life which is certain. Now if you've been following along in Ecclesiastes, you will not be surprised by what the teacher has to say. You won't be shocked at what the teacher describes as the one certainty in life. He gives it to us in verses 2 to 3. He says in verse 2, All share a common destiny. And in verse 3, he says, the same destiny overtakes all. And what is it? Well, at the end of verse 3, he says, it is that we all join the dead. Yet again, the teacher wants us to look long and hard at the certainty of our death. And we might be thinking, come on, move on, man. I mean, talk about something else. The teacher has talked a lot about death. And if we're honest, it can make us uncomfortable. I mean, we don't like to really think about it. We don't like to talk about it. We probably agree with Woody Allen, who once said, my relationship with death remains the same. I'm strongly against it. 
But the fact is, in this fallen and broken world, even if we're strongly against it, even if we rail against the idea of death, we cannot stop it and we cannot avoid it. Doesn't matter how much greens we eat, doesn't matter how many kilometres we run, it even doesn't matter, the teacher says, what type of person we are. He says the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty, the believer and the unbeliever, the Aussie and the Kiwi, everyone, all of us, go into the ground eventually. Or as one pastor likes to say, in 100 years, all new people. And when the teacher kind of looks at this reality, he describes it as evil. This is what he says in verse 3. He says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Now, it's not that he's saying death is evil, although that's true. He's saying the way that death works is evil because it does not discriminate. It takes the good and the bad, the young and the old, the rich and the poor, the drug dealer and the rehab worker. I mean, death is the end and the equaliser of us all, no matter how we've lived or who we are. In the book that I've mentioned to you before, it's called Destiny by David Gibson, which has really helped me with the sermon this week. He shares this story. David says, a good friend of mine lost his grown-up daughter to cancer. She was a strong Christian and so is my friend. On one occasion when she was dying, he was by her bedside in hospital when a friend of the family came to visit. This person happened to be a well-connected medical doctor who offered to see if he could arrange specialist help from London. My friend expressed his gratitude for this offer of help, but then also said to the kind doctor, remember, we all come to this. As a father myself, it was so moving to see his profound grasp of reality in the face of his own daughter's imminent death. He was not being fatalistic or pessimistic. I know he longed for his daughter to be cured or healed, and he did not refuse the doctor's help. Yet my friend was living by being prepared for death. Now, this is one of the lessons that Ecclesiastes leaves with us. It confronts us with the reality of death, not to make us morbid or depressed, but to help prepare us for that day. Now, we can, like many people do, just avoid thinking about it. We can minimise it like in The Lion King. We can say that it's just part of the circle of life. It's just a natural process. We can lean on some kind of vague ideas about going to a better place. We can come up with all kinds of coping mechanisms. But the fact is, we cannot avoid it and we cannot come back from it. This is what the teacher goes on to say in verses 5 to 6. He says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? I mean, what an encouraging message for Father's Day. Don't worry, it'll get better. And in fact, even in this section, the teacher rings a note of hope 
This is what he says in verse 4. He says, anyone who is among the living, which I hope is all of us, has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. In other words, if you're still breathing, then you're not finished. Where there's life, there's hope. And we're going to see a little later on the incredible hope that we do have, even in the face of death. But for now, the teacher is avoiding simple answers. He's helping us to see the one thing in life which is certain, the day of our death. But he doesn't leave it there. I mean, this is only the first outside section, the first layer of bread. He goes on and he shows us in the other outside section, the bottom layer of bread, the next important truth. And that is the many things in life which are uncertain. Now, if death is the one thing in life which is certain, then that means that almost everything else is uncertain. This is what the teacher says in verse 11. He says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, of course, most often and usually the race does go to the fastest. The battle is won by the strongest. The sensible, wise person has food on the table. The, the brilliant person gets the high-paid job and, and so forth. That's what usually happens, but not always. Why? Because time and chance happen to all. There are so many things in life that happen which are out of our control. In other words, life is not only brief, it's also unpredictable. Now, I don't know if you did this when you were in high school, but when I graduated from year 12, at our formal, we did what was known as the Most Likely To Awards. Basically, each student was assigned something that they were most likely to do in the future. For example, most likely to become a millionaire, most likely to cure cancer, most likely to play for the Broncos. Now, fortunately, none of those things were assigned to me. No, mine was most likely to star in a shampoo commercial. Believe it or not, I actually had quite long curly hair in year 12. And if you don't believe it, Here's a photo. Now, I know what you're thinking. What happened? <laughs> now, my life has obviously not worked out the way that my classmates expected it to. I can confirm that I've never starred in a shampoo commercial. Nor did my hairline go the way I was hoping it would. But that's just the point. Life doesn't work out the way that we always think it should or expect it to. Life is unpredictable. And now if you didn't believe this before 2020, you almost certainly believe it now. I mean, a virus which we can't even see, which originated in another part of the globe, it has changed our way of life. It has brought our globe to a standstill. We are not in control of the future. 
In fact, in verse 12, the teacher compares us to a fish who is happily swimming along and then suddenly caught in a net. Or a bird who lands for some food and is unexpectedly caught in a snare. I mean, we, have, we can have our lives turned upside down by a phone call, a conversation, a diagnosis that we never saw coming, that we never dreamed would happen to us. You might be feeling strong at the moment. You might be feeling wealthy, wise, well-educated and in control, but the teacher says don't take it for granted because time and chance happen to all. And these are the two slices of bread that the teacher gives us. Now, they're a little bit like gluten-free wholemeal. They're not very pleasant. On the one hand, the teacher tells us that our death is certain. On the other hand, he tells us that our lives are uncertain. And so the question is, in this brief and unpredictable life, how should we live? How should we approach life in this world? And the teacher gives us the answer in the middle section. And it's somewhat of a surprising answer. It's simple and it's beautiful. He says, if one day you will be dead, then live right now. If you don't know what tomorrow will bring, live today. The way to live wisely in God's world, it is to enjoy the gifts that God gives us. And this leads us to the middle section and to our final point, which is the good things in life, which are gifts. This is what the teacher says in verse 7. He says, Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. I think I've decided that this is my new life verse. Now notice that this is a command. Go. Get going. Seize the day. Enjoy life. Eat your food and and drink your wine with a glad heart. Don't just rush through your meals. Enjoy the flavors. Enjoy the textures. They've been given to you by God, not just for your sustenance, but for your enjoyment. I mean, have you ever wondered why we have such a rich variety of foods and flavours? So many different fruits and vegetables and grains and spices and meats. They are a gift from our kind and creative God. He has given them to us for our enjoyment. How do we know this? Well, the teacher goes on to say in the rest of verse 7, Eat and drink with gladness and joy for God has already approved what you do. Now, this sounds a little bit like he's saying, go do whatever you want and God will approve. But that's not exactly his point. You see, the teacher is saying, by giving us this world and everything in it, God has implicitly given us permission to enjoy it. God has pre-approved our enjoyment of this world. It's kind of like when I give gifts to my children on Christmas Day. Now, when I hand that gift to them, they don't have to sit there and wonder, can I open it? Am I allowed to open it? 
simply by the fact that I've handed it to them, given it to them. I'm saying, go for it. Open it up. Enjoy it. And by giving this world to us, God is saying to us, enjoy it. God has given us approval to enjoy it. God takes pleasure in our pleasure. Now, did you know that this was in the Bible? I mean, this is incredible. Did you know that God wants you to enjoy life? Now, of course, this is not the prosperity gospel. This verse does not say, enjoy your mansion and your private jet and your holiday in Tahiti. No, it simply says, enjoy your food and enjoy your drink. This is something we can all do. This is achievable for all of us. And notice that it says, enjoy your food and your drink. It's not about looking at what everybody else has. It's about what God has given to you. It's about enjoying the life that God has given you, being content in it, giving thanks for it. I love that the Bible speaks about, you know, the ultimate questions of life, the deep realities of the cosmos. But I also love that the Bible talks about the daily experience of eating dinner. Because God is there with us around the table. I mean, our simple, ordinary, earthly lives are a kind gift from God. Enjoy them. The teacher goes on in verse 8 and he says, Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Now, this is about as close as you will get to a biblical dress code. But before you go out and buy or pull out your white suits and get some olive oil, we need to understand what the teacher's saying. I like the way Sidney Gridanus puts it in his commentary. He says, In that day, when people were joyful, they showed it by wearing white clothes and putting oil on their head. In our culture, we might show our joy by wearing colourful clothes and having a neat hairdo and a smile on our face. In other words, does the way that we look and does the way that we carry ourselves, does it show that we belong to God, that we live under the smile of God? Do we carry ourselves with joy and gratitude? The teacher goes on in verse 9 and he says, Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. Now there's a verse to put on an anniversary card. Honey, another great year of our meaningless life together. Now, the teacher is not saying that your marriage is meaningless, that your marriage doesn't matter. Remember, the word that is translated here, meaningless, is hevel, which actually means breath, wind, vapour. So I don't think meaningless is the best translation. The teacher is not saying that your marriage doesn't matter. In fact, it's the opposite. He's saying your marriage matters greatly, But the point is that it won't ultimately last. I mean, this is the truth that we acknowledge in our wedding vows. We say, until death do us part. And so here's the point we need to get. And this is an important lesson, especially for husbands and dads today on Father's Day. The teacher is saying, enjoy your wife while you have her. Don't let your life together 
slip away. Don't live today in a way that you will regret in the future. Don't just put up with your wife or just live with your wife. Enjoy her, cherish her. Now, I know that for for some of us, this right now is hard to imagine. But it's worth fighting for. In fact, David Gibson, the, the author I mentioned earlier, he has a particularly important word to husbands. He says, if you are too busy to enjoy the life you have together, then you are too busy. End of story. If you do not enjoy each other, then it is likely that you are simply taking what you can from each other to pursue other goals and ambitions which are never going to give you all they promise. You may use each other to gain something that will turn out not to be gain and lose each other in the process. I'd say it this way, other than God himself, the one constant presence in your life, if you're married, will be your wife. Long after the kids have grown up and moved out, long after your career is over, long after you're too old to play sports and and have hobbies, your wife, God willing, will be the one constant presence in your life. And so the question is, are you investing your time and your effort in the right area? Are you enjoying your wife while you have her? We are being invited in this passage to enjoy God's good gifts, to enjoy food and drink and clothes and companionship. And of course, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not saying enjoy these things and only these things. No, this is a representative list. It's a way of saying when God made this world, the very physical world that we live in with bodies and trees and food and drink and sex, he made it good. He made it for us to enjoy. Now, yes, sin has fractured everything and distorted everything. Yes, we need to enjoy these things within the limits that God gives us. But we can and we should receive them and enjoy them with gratitude. I love the way Ray Ortland summarizes it. He writes, The Bible says that the physical creation is good because God made it. It is broken because we touched it. And it is being renewed because Christ died and rose again. In him and in him alone, we get our humanity back forever. And so what are you waiting for? Here's how the teacher puts it in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. In other words, do what you can while you can. Enjoy the many things in life which are gifts from God. Ride a bike. Go to the theatre. Learn an instrument. Learn a language. Visit the sick. Feed the hungry. Watch a good movie. Read a good book. Listen to Bob Dylan. Climb a mountain. Kick a football. Run a marathon. Go snorkelling. Call your parents. Play with your kids, laugh with your friends, 
serve at church, start a ministry, talk about Christ, adopt a child, give away money. Don't wait to serve God and to enjoy his gifts. Do it today. Don't wait to make an impact in someone else's life. Do what you can while you can. Enjoy the life and the gifts that God has given to you. This is such an important lesson that all of us, I think, need to learn. Now, maybe you've been around church for a while. Maybe you know the Bible really well and you're thinking to yourself, I I agree with all of this, Adam. But isn't this just a a Christianized version of carpe diem, the Latin phrase for seize the day, or the more recent version of YOLO, you only live once? I mean, what does it mean to love life in this world if this world and its desires are passing away, as the Bible tells us? How can I really enjoy life in this world if if I'm meant to love Christ and, and work for his kingdom above all else? Now, that's a great question, and, and I think it has a great answer. Because these two things, to enjoy life in this world and to love Christ above all else, they go hand in hand beautifully. And here's why. In this created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. Let me say that again. In this created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. Here's the way David Gibson puts it. He says, the man who makes sex his God and worships it discovers that actually what is normal, pleasurable, soon becomes inadequate, not enough. And he becomes chained to a path whereby he begins to enjoy only perversion, which of course is no enjoyment. The woman who makes her family her God and who worships her children discovers that they fail her and disappoint her and do not achieve all that she wanted them to achieve. And so she is left empty-handed and unfulfilled. You can fill in the blanks with every single one of the good things in this world. When you worship God's gifts, they will never ever deliver what they promise and instead will leave you empty and broken. Do you remember the imagery we used a few weeks ago to describe God's gifts? We used the imagery of salt water. Now remember, salt water is a good thing. It's refreshing, it's it's beneficial, it's enjoyable. But we're not meant to drink it. And the gifts of God, they're good things. They're refreshing, they're enjoyable, they're beneficial, but we're not meant to worship them. They're not God. We're not meant to build our lives on them. They can't take that kind of weight. If we do try to build our lives on them, if we look to them for our ultimate meaning, we will crush them and we will crush ourselves under the weight of our expectation. Only God can take the weight of our worship. And so the gifts of God, they are for our enjoyment in this life. But they also point us beyond themselves to the next life. I mean, it's interesting that verses 7 to 10 are filled with wedding imagery. Food and drink, white clothes, a husband and a wife. Now, I don't think that this is coincidental because the Bible consistently looks forward to the day in the future when all of God's people will sit down to a wedding feast prepared by God. 
For example, the, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in chapter 25, he says that at this feast there will be the best of meats and the finest of wines. And as we swallow this finest food and fine drink, we're told that God will swallow up death forever in verse 8. And this is exactly what we see at the end of the Bible. The Bible ends with a great wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, the great banquet that Jesus talked about in Luke 14. And we see this reality even in Jesus' lifetime. I mean, he feasted in anticipation of the future. His first recorded miracle was at a wedding. He turned water into wine. And during his short life, Jesus repeatedly feasted with others because he, the ultimate teacher, the true wise man, he is showing us what it means to live in God's world. And he shows us that God's good world is to be enjoyed within God's boundaries and to be enjoyed in relationship with others. He shows us that as we eat and drink together now, we do so in anticipation of our feasting together in the future. Because there is a day coming when those of us who trust in Jesus, we will sit down together with God and with one another. Not floating around just in a spiritual realm, wearing diapers and playing harps, but rather in resurrected bodies and in a renewed creation. When heaven and earth are reunited, when God and his people are reconciled forever. And this means during the days of our brief and uncertain life in this world, we can eat and drink with joy because we know that one day we will eat and drink with God forever because our sin has been paid for and death has been defeated by our resurrected King. You know, it reminds me of one of the final scenes from the book, The Last Battle which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. In the book, the children and the animals, they, they, they move from the old Narnia, which is like an allegory of earth, and, and they move into the new Narnia, which is an, uh, a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And, and this is what the book says. It writes, It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right hoof on the ground and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for my, all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. And you see, the gifts of God are from the real country. They smell, they taste, and they feel like home. And so we are called to enjoy them now in anticipation of the future. We are called to enjoy them to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the Father of lights from whom comes every good and perfect gift, including the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who died in our place for our sin and rose again to defeat death, so that though we know the day of our death is certain, 
we know that our resurrection and our new life in him is even more certain. And so we turn to you, Jesus. We find our hope in you. And we ask that you might help us to enjoy the gifts that you've given us, to not look to them for our meaning and our purpose, but to look to them as foretastes of the world that is to come, where we will sit down and we will eat and we will drink and we will laugh in your presence forevermore. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand? We're going to close our service before we sing with these words from Revelation chapter 7. Blessing and honour and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.